As many of you know, uh, I meet with uh, Peter, my fellow elder, and less providentially hindered, I meet with him every Tuesday morning uh, to talk, uh, and we do a lot of that. We talk about all sorts of things, what's going on in our lives. Uh, we talk about doctrine, we talk about practice, we talk about the lives of each other in the congregation. Um, we talk about the ministry of God's Word. We usually finish these meetings. Uh, Peter won't, won't allow me to lie by giving a surprised look at the clock and realizing that uh, we're well into the afternoon and we end by praying over the matters we discussed and uh, for the good of the church in general. And the reason why I'm saying this is that earlier this year, Peter came to me uh, and most of us have had uh, to deal with Peter for many years. And you know the look that he gives to you when he wants to tell you something that he's afraid to tell you, that he might, might discourage you. And he's kind of asking you to please tell me what, you're, what you want to say. And, and he didn't want to be a discouragement. And he's never a discouragement. He's, uh, he's always uh, an encouragement to me. But he wanted to mention something that he had to start to see in the ministry, particularly in the evening services with the preaching of God's word. For a few months I had been preaching in uh, one-offs, uh, random sermons, uh, or in somewhat random texts. Um, and he mentioned to me, not in these words, but that it was becoming kind of repetitive, or uh, it was risking the, the emphasis on conversionistic preaching was risking uh, not being uh, relevant to the, the rest of the congregation. Little did he know when he said this to me that I had, leading up to this conversation, also been having this sense that I needed to change something with the evening service or with the evening message and ministry. So I replied to him, it's funny you should say that, because I had just been working in the morning on trying to uh, organize the ministry for this latter part of the year. And I decided to preach... Uh, one Samuel in the morning, uh, as we've been doing, and Ruth in the evening in the lead-up to Christmas in the New Year. I do this in, with a few months in advance because it allows me to do that, what they, they call grunt work of, of sermon preparation, do that with a few months in advance so that uh, I don't get bogged down with sermon prep. But then Peter gave me another look that most of you know. He wanted to ask me that, uh, a question, and he, he looked at me, and he asked me, how is it that you decide what you're going to preach on, and uh, why, why these, these passages, why these books, and how do you decide? And, and I had to confess to him, and as I confess to you as well, that the, the, the why, or the, the how I decide, it's very straightforward, it's just it's just what it is. I don't have a mystical experience. I don't know what Peter was expecting me to answer then, uh, but I don't have a mystical experience or a vision or a, a dream that tells me you must preach one Samuel to the congregation. The why is slightly less different, uh, slightly less uh, disparaging, slightly different, more thought out, more straight, uh, although straightforward. I choose based on what I think would be helpful for us, based on what I 
believe would be relevant to us. And in particular, and this is why the, the long introduction here, uh, in particular, what attracted me to preach through Samuel, or at least the introduction of the book of Samuel, is the section that we are about to begin, from chapter 4 to chapter 7. I believe that it's very relevant to all of us. This section that is known from chapter 4 to chapter 7, the arc narrative, is a section that is intensely relevant to us in our day. And you might ask, why is it relevant? We're, we're geographically removed and chronologically removed from the people in these days. How is it that we, it is relevant for us in our day and age? We're so different in so many ways from the people of Samuel's day. And that is certainly true. But if you look deeper, if you look beneath the surface, if you look at the roots of, uh, of mankind, if you look at what actually is there, we realize that we are not too dissimilar from these Israelites, from the people that are spoken here from verse 1 to verse 11. We live in a day and an age where if you go outside, although quickly diminishing, but if you go out there and start asking people what they think about God, they'll tell you that, and happily tell you that they believe in God. A God. A sort of God. Some form of divine entity. But for the most part, when you press them for, uh, uh, more and ask them, what is God? Who is God to you? When you ask them who or what they think God is, they are either unable, unwilling to say anything. For people out there, although diminishing certainly in the West, when they say they believe in God, they don't have the, the notion of the God of the Bible that revealed himself in the pages of Scripture. They don't think necessarily in a Godhead, a triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. They do not think of a God who is the creator of heavens and earth, who created everything. They do not think of a God who came and dwelt among men, took on flesh, died on Calvary's tree uh, as an atonement for, for many. They don't think of Jesus as the God's the Son. They don't think of, of God in biblical terms. And that's when you get, and I'm sure many of us have experience of this, when you're talking with a co-worker, with a neighbor about God, they'll go, oh, but my view of God is... Or I'd like to think of God as this. Or um, my concept, uh, concept of God includes this or that or the other. They, there is a, a, a sense where someone said it. God created mankind in his image. And ever since, God, uh, mankind has been creating God or, or returning the favor by making God in a, in, according to his own fancies. And that's what's happening some people see God as a, a football fan kind of God. The football fan is, is standing there in the, in the, in the stands. He is not involved in the game. He's only there to support 
the players, to, to cheer them on, to give them a, 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 to clap when they do well, to boo when they do wrong, but, but certainly not really involved in, the, in, the, in our lives. Not just there, in the background, somewhere. Or as a butler in, in our homes. Not, we don't have butlers in our homes, but a butler like the, the rich people have in their homes. The butler is there. He's in the background. He's away from sight if you don't need him. But if you need him, you, you, they see God as a butler. You wave the hand. Can you bring me some more salt? I need this. I need that. He brings everything is nice and good. He goes back. Some people see God as a, a sort of doctor. They have this notion of God that is, is there for when you need him, really. When, when, uh, when, the, when things are going wrong, when the pain is not going away, they, they are not there with you by your side always, but you go to them. You go to doctors, and, and the same thing with God. God is somewhere there. I'll, I'll go to him when I need him. When, but when, when everything else is going fine, you don't need God. For, so he's out of sight, out of mind. And yet, as I say this, I realize that I'm speaking to people who wouldn't profess in this way. There is also a way, which I think is more of what we see here in chapter 4, that we profess to be Christians, that we profess to be theists, that we sing the God of Abraham praise, that we sing uh, the hymn that we just sung, uh, when we sing all kinds of, of uh, things, but when it comes to our behavior, when it comes to actually living out what we sing and what we say, when it comes to being holy, when it comes to being pure, when it comes to, to obedience, when it comes to worship, when it comes to the actual application of the truth that God exists and, and that needs to imp impact my practical living, we don't really want that. So we profess Christianity, but actually in practice we, we're atheists. When it comes to behavior, we're atheists. Oh, God will, won't judge me on that. I don't like to think of God like that. And you may be asking, how, how is this relevant to the passage we just read? Well, because there is nothing new under the sun. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 1 to verse 11, we see exactly the same thing. It's the same kind of perspective. It's a wrong notion, a, a, a wrong uh, idea of, of who God is. You believe... Uh, we believe in our day that we can manipulate God, that we can twist his arm, that if we do certain kinds of things, God is going to be forced to work on our behalf. He's a butler, he's a doctor, he's a, he's a cheerleader, he's, a, he's a, a football fan. And this is how they are behaving here. That somehow, so, in some form, if God uh, exists, we can manipulate him, we can control him. In, at the core of this, of this chapter, uh, or this section in, in chapter 4, is that mistaken notion. 
is it's that misplaced faith. It's that, it's that superstitious idea that, well, if we do this, God is going to have to come in. The problem is not so much that they have the wrong view of God. It's that their, their understanding of God has been set aside in the course of time. They've abandoned. And again, there, there is a sense where the, the, the previous chapters flow into this, into this chapter. Uh, a lot of the modern scholars, they say that uh, the arc narrative, this section from chapter 4 to chapter 7, uh, was added later. It, or is a, a different tradition and someone redacted and someone collated and compiled the book of Samuel. And, and boom, there, there we go. We have Samuel here. It doesn't really fit with the rest of, the, of its context. I, I beg to differ. I do believe it fits. However, it came to pass that this... Uh, how this book was compiled in the providence of God. If you look at Anna's prayer, Anna's prayer is totally relevant for what's happening now in chapter 4. Re let's read it again from a few weeks ago. She says, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. Verse 2, Nor is there any rock like our God. And then verse 3, Don't be arrogant. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is the God of knowledge. The Lord is the God who knows the heart. The Lord is the God who knows the intents. And the Lord is the one that by him actions are weighed. And that's what we see happening here. In verse 1 of chapter 4, we won't go verse by verse this morning, uh, the second part of verse 1, we see that Israel now comes and faces against the Philistines. Again, uh, first time the Philistines show up in the book of Samuel. If you know a little bit of the Old Testament, you know that around this time, uh, at the, in the time of the judges to the time of the early monarchy, the Philistines were this uh, thorn in uh, in, uh, in Israel's side. They were always there. They were kind of the Philistines, were kind of the barometer that, uh, that gauged how well spiritually the life of Israel was doing. The Philistines were a people who settled along the south, the coastlands of southern Canaan. They had, uh, according to judges, they had five cities uh, that were in league, that, were, that made up a, a federation, let's say, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, Gath, and Gaza. And the Philistines often tried to expand their territory. And in the time of Samuel, in the time of the early monarchy, they came in direct conflict with the Israelites again. The Israelites, we read in verse 2, that in the process of this first battle, they were defeated. And from the reactions uh, of the elders of the elders of Israel, from the reaction of those who, who, who stayed back in the in the camp, uh, it seems like that the lame spiritual leadership of of Eli, as the as the one who was ruling over Israel at this time, uh, as the uh, as this spiritual leadership of Eli and the 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 wicked attitudes of his sons had clearly penetrated into the life of Israel. They understood. They understood, verse 3, that it was the Lord that had defeated them. It was the Lord that had brought uh, them to shame before the Philistines. 
They were beaten badly, and they were not used to getting beaten. Up until here, very rarely you'd find the, that you find that consistently Israel was, was more used to victory than to defeat. But instead of seeking the reason, instead of bowing their knees, they acted presumptuously. They thought, and it's, it's kind of like in quick succession, even in the text, in the literary genre here, you kind of can see that. Uh, why has the, 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 the Lord defeated, defeated us today before the Philistines? It's like th- th- there is even no pause here. It's like, oh, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant, like a good luck charm, like an amulet, like a, like, like some, a rabbit foot or a, a, how do you call the, the thing you put on the, on the horse, horseshoes. It's, let's bring that in. That will make it better. Why did the Lord defeat us? Why did the Lord tra- strike us? Why did the Lord uh, make us lose this battle? Doesn't matter, does it? Just bring the ark on. Just bring the talisman in. They asked the right question. They understood that God was sovereign over their victory and their defeat. They asked the right question, but their action was completely wrong. In Leviticus 26, uh, just for you to understand what is the reasoning and the rationale in, uh, behind the Israelite thinking, uh, as God gives them the law, we, we, we read this, uh, that if you do not obey me, God says, and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments, but break my covenant, and then a list comes in. Uh, in this list, and this will become relevant uh, later, for instance, the, 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 the people of God being in the land was conditional on their being obedient. That's why years and years later, they were taken into exile in Babylon. But that's, we'll, we'll look more at it in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, but here's the list. Verse 17, I believe, uh, he says, I will set my face against you, the Lord says, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Those who hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when no one pursues you. God made this clear to his people. I'm not going to be coerced into helping you. If you obey me, uh, things will be good to you, you'll do well. If you disobey, if you break my commandment, if you you are... uh, not obedient to my word, there is no chance I'm going to be there for you. And you might say, oh, but that's the God of the Old Testament. No, the God of the Old Testament, the New Testament says exactly the same thing in Revelation. There's no God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. And what is the mess that Israel is in this time? Well, we just read about it, didn't we? In chapter 1 and 2, or in chapter 2 in particular, we read about what was happening in Shiloh, in the, in the religious center, where these two brothers, representative of, of Israel, were acting so wickedly. Where these two sons of Eli 
were being so disobedient. And then, if you were to, and some of you might know this, when you go, come to chapter 7, you realize that it wasn't just the sins of Ophni and Phineas. The, the people themselves had uh, become idolatrous. The people, the people themselves had broken the first commandment. And, and actually, although not said in this, cha- in this passage, in, verse, in chapter 4, they were being idolatrous here. They were treating the ark as if it was some kind of, 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 of religious symbol that was going to save them. That's, in fact, that's what they say in verse 3. That when the ark comes of, amongst us, it may save us from the hands of our enemies. That's idolatry. And they were defeated. They were defeated. They're wrong. They have this mistaken notion, this misplaced faith. It's the same kind of misplaced faith that we find in our own day. If I do this, God will therefore have to do this for me. In prosperity, health and wealth, prosperity gospel circles, it's, more, it's to do with, the, with your giving. If you give this amount, God will give you back tenfold. Or if you give this amount, God will heal you. Or if you do this, if you do that, there will be blessing coming your way. That's the same idea. Let's just get the ark. Things are going wrong. Let's just do this. Someone, a, a commentator, called, uh, as he is uh, arriving at this section, he calls it rabbit foot theology. Rabbit foot theology. That's what these men have. That's what so often we act like. The ark was supposed to stay in the tabernacle. But the Israelites bring it into the battlefield. They think if they put this symbol among them, they will win the battle. And they're wrong. They got it so wrong. They replaced faith in the living God by, by, by this trinket, this superstition, this... this they're no longer pro- prepared to bow down. Instead of asking themselves, why has the Lord defeated us? Good. Instead of saying, okay, why is it really? Let's bow our knees. Let's, let's seek the Lord's forgiveness. Where is the sin? God said that we would be defeated if we stopped obeying. Where are we not obeying? Where are we actually wrong? But no, the, their answer is, oh, we got this. We're going to make this. We're in a mess. But we're going to make this better. And it is true even today, sadly. It is true even today, sadly, that many who are perhaps thinking themselves uh, to be in a very good spiritual state make, make a lot of noise, a lot of ruckus. They presume a lot. So often is the case that the people who are in the most, in the biggest mess, or the people who are the most empty, are the ones that make the more, speak the more confidently. In Portugal, we have this saying. I don't, I don't think there is an equivalent, but someone will will tell me if I, if there is a, an equivalent saying in English that the emptier the wagon is, the more noise it makes. It is true, isn't it? If it's well packed and full, it doesn't make a lot of noise, but. Just empty it, and it just starts rattling and making a lot of noise. 
It was true then and it is true now, brothers. It was true then in, in Samuel chapter 40 and it is true now. How are we to stand in this world as we fight against the world, the, the flesh and the devil? How are we to stand in our, in our own spiritual warfare? It's not by making a lot of noise, beating our chest and like the Israelites, shouting uh, overconfidently in our presumption. No, it's in, we stand as Christians in our knees. We stand, if we are to stand, we are to stand by falling on our knees and lifting our hands high and pleading for the Lord's mercy. Everything else, everything else where you think that you might have, might have uh, everything else is just mere presumption. And I'll keep it at that. It's the folly of the worst sort. May the Lord prune us from, from having that kind of spiritual attitude or action. It was true then and it is true now. The Ark of the Covenant. An instrument that was an instrument created by God for blessing. An instrument that was put there by God for the blessing, for the reminder, for the remembrance of the people. As an instrument of his presence in, in, in the midst of of the, the tribes turned into a, an idol, turned into a good luck charm, turned into a talisman. And we need to ask ourselves, don't we? I fear that sometimes, instead of now pointing the finger out of the, uh, at the other outside, ask ourselves, where do we do this kind of talisman thinking? I fear that at times we do it with our rich reformed heritage. I fear that at times we might be doing it with our rich reformed uh, history, with our rich reformed heritage in our service, our worship. But quickly, now let me just say as a, a wraparound in this, before we come to, to consider the, the end uh, of this section, the story does not start well. Israel takes God lightly. They are trying to use God. They are trying to twist his arm. They are trying to force him to act on their behalf. They are not taking God seriously. On the other hand, you look at the Philistine camp in verse 6, and they actually have better theology than the Israelites, in a sense. They are taking this situation seriously. They hear the shout. They discover what's happening. And the result is that they are afraid. You could actually say, ironically speaking, that they have a better theology and understanding of God than actually the Israelites. It's kind of like Jonah, isn't it? Jonah was very presumptuous as well. He thought that he could go his own way and do his own thing. And as he's standing there in the boat, it's, it's the, the sailors that tell him, Why isn't that you're praying? The sailors have better understanding that, that, than Jonah. Interestingly, and, yet, and maybe surprisingly, as they are afraid, because here's the Hebrews is probably, when they call them the, the camp of the Hebrews, Hebrews here was probably a derogatory term. Um, most people in, uh, now agree that the term Hebrew is actually a derogatory term, so don't call Hebrews uh, to anyone. No, but these Hebrew people, kind of like saying these Hebrew people, Interestingly, 
yet surprisingly, instead of beating the retreat, instead of fleeing, instead of, of disbanding, as so often was the case, wasn't it, in the days uh, when Lord is come in to fight for Israel and fight in Israel's place, they actually spur themselves onwards. They, they think and they, 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 they see that the defeat is coming, but they say, oh, play the man. Well, if we go, we go with courage. Let's, let's, let's fight. They bolster their forces. They go out against the, the Israelites. And we have this terrible result. The Philistines fought. And shocker of shockers, Israel was defeated again. This time wasn't 4,000. This time was 30,000. 30,000 souls. 30,000 men that on that day were transported to their eternal resting place. 30,000 souls that will have to give an account before the Lord at the great judgment day. So what was the terrible result? The ark wasn't the answer, was it? The ark was captured. There was a great slaughter. And the two sons of Eli, Ophni and Phineas, died. Again, you remind yourselves of the judgment that God had said that would come upon the, upon the, the house of Eli. And God is bringing that to happen now. And you can say, yes, it is an expression of God's judgment upon the house of Eli. It is true. But it is also an expression of God's grace. His grace in this respect that he is removing the, 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 the two characters that were bringing sin into the worship in the, in the tabernacle at Shiloh. He was preparing the way so that when Samuel came to do his work, as he, he would guide his people forward. He ends the rule of Eli as the judge in order to start the rule of Samuel. You know, there is a psalm. Let me just turn there. Psalm 78 that speaks of this time. So often the Psalms were uh, referring to some of the event, uh, refer to the events of Scripture. And Psalm 78 in particular, uh, verse 60, well, Psalm 78 retells the history of Israel in, in many ways. Uh, from verse 60, well, for, let's read from verse 59. Is speaking about this particular situation. Verse 59 to, apologies, 62. When God heard this, he was furious and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent he had placed among men, and delivered his strength, his ark, into captivity, and his glory into the enemy's land. He also gave his people over to the sword and was furious with his inheritance. 
I won't say much today. I'll say it in a couple of weeks' time, uh, next week and then the following week. But the language here of the ark being taken into captivity should make us all remember something. Should take us all remember, make us all remember that God had said, if you sin, you will be taken away from the land. And here Israel sinned. And instead of Israel paying the price, God was taken away from the land. The presence of God was taken into captivity. But we'll see of this more in the coming weeks. You know what this is actually means for, for us is that we cannot think of God as in this way. Yes, we may not we don't have an ark, we don't trust the ark, we, we but we may be trusting something else. I can do this. I can make this. It doesn't really matter what the Bible says. Oh I know the Bible says this, but I know that this, this is the action that I, that I... But... I know that God is not pleased with this, but... Essentially, you've become to see God as a, a football fan, or a butler, or a, or a doctor. You've begun to see God as someone who's there not to tell you what you need to do. A God who says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But a God who, who is basically there to serve your purpose, uh, your pleasures. So what is this, the, the way forward? What is the alternative to this kind of thinking? Matthew Henry said, uh, said something brilliant. Matthew Henry, the, the Puritan. He said that let none think to shelter themselves of the wrath of God under the cloak of a visible profession. That's what they were doing. That's what we so often do. Well, well I was baptized. Well, I, I do this. Well, I serve in this way. Well, I was a pastor. Well, I was an elder. Well, I was a deacon. A deacon. Well, I, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name? And in your name cast out many demons. And in your name... What will the Lord say? Depart from me. I never knew you. You know there was one who ate... And drank with the Lord and he was of the devil. Matthew Henry says. He supped with the Lord. But he was a, a devil. So what is the alternative? In the next 10 minutes let me just try and bring this to. The alternative to this kind of thinking. Is what Martin Luther used to call the theology of the cross. That biblical religion, he says, is not a, a, a series of techniques for manipulating God's goodwill or harnessing God's power. Rather, it is a humble appeal for God's mercy and grace. And he has offered mercy and grace through his son. The Ark of the Covenant, in that sense, is very fitting for this conclusion because the Ark of the Covenant is a visible representation of the presence of God. It was a type there in, 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 within the ark was the law. Within the ark was the presence of God. Within, uh, uh, on top of the ark, the cherubim. 
And by the way, don't, when you visualize the cherubim, don't think of angels with, with, with archers and, and bo- with, bows and ar- uh, with bows and arrows. Uh, the cherubim in, in Middle Eastern thought in, the, in that time was more like those big statues that you see in the Natural History Museum of those lions with the a, with a head of a, of a person and with wings. That's usually what was understood as cherubim in, in that culture. Um, but in the mercy seat, that throne, the mercy seat, in fact, the ark represents Christ's, Christ in his perfect work. He fulfills God's law. God's law is within him. He sheds his atoning blood so that God's presence and favor can now be ours through our union with him. And, and I realize we so often in our despair, we, we, we fall into this kind of superstitious thinking. Something is going wrong in my life. That's because I, uh, I need to do this or I need to do that. And we want God's power and we want God's help and God's uh, presence in our struggles and trials. But we must first come to deal with God himself before God comes and, and deals in our lives. We must first come before him on his terms. We must first uh, face his demand for perfect righteousness that his holiness requires. We first must realize that the arrival of of the ark in the camp should have led the Israelites to their knees in conviction of their sin, we need to realize that for ourselves. The Israel's, Israel's elders reveal their attitude by by their idolatry in 1 Samuel by saying, well, let's bring the ark, but the ark will save us. The ark will, will do this for us. They were, stru- they were trusting the ark to save them. They were trusting that, that box, the box, bring the box, and the box will do that for us. Rather than trusting him to whom the ark pointed to. Even good things like baptism, even good things like knowledge of, of the Bible, theology, can be misused. We cannot be saved by a thing, by a routine. We cannot be saved by a ritual. We cannot be saved by some kind of step process. We need the gospel of Christ. And it is the gospel of Christ that is presented to us in the New Testament. Not ceremonial observances, not, not outward obedience, but trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation alone. Not trusting circumcision, as Paul says, circumcision avails nothing. trusting that we are circumcised in the heart or not trusting but 
trusting in the Lord, which is the circumcision of the heart. So the three takeaways are this, that we cannot twist God's arm, that we cannot coerce God to do the things that we want him to do, that God is not honored and will not be with us if we have form instead of substance, if we have a form of godliness denying the power thereof. And ultimately, the third lesson that this teaches us is that sin brings defeat. It brought defeat to the Israelites in, the, uh, in between uh, Ebenezer and Aphek. And it brought defeat for the Israelites because of the sin of Achan. It brought defeat to those. It brought Saul's disobedience uh, years later uh, would bring defeat to him as well. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. May you come and may you trust in him. He says, let the wicked forsake his ways. Turn to God and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon the only way we'll stand, brothers and sisters, is with our, in our knees with lifted hands. Let us do that. Let us sing to him.